Hello, welcome back to Relevant Tones. I'm Matthew Dosland. I'll be your host for this episode. And today I am delighted to be joined by composer Michael Hirsch. Michael, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. Doing well, thank you. Great. I think where I wanted to start today is uh, your most recent composition, which is a pretty large-scale opera work that you premiered uh just earlier this year called Medea. And I wanted to talk uh, just a little bit about how that project kind of came to fruition first. And then like what, you know, you're, you're working with a couple different ensembles in Germany. And, you know, what was it like to kind of get the ball rolling with them? And how did it kind of start to come to the production that was premiered recently? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, and really, over the past fifteen years, I've I've become more and more focused on on individuals who find themselves in uh, often unthinkable circumstances, and how these individuals confront those circumstances. For many years, I had a focus and an interest on individuals who faced violence from within, really, and I guess that would primarily take the form of illness. Uh, and in more recent years, um, I've become interested in individuals confronting violences from without. So violences were wrought upon them by others. And more recently, I've been writing pieces that have increasingly honed in on individuals who've been victims of violence themselves, but were also the inflictors of violence upon others. And so Medea uh, was a story that seemed to fall in line with with these these framings and um and you know and, and over the years i traversed you know tellings like euripides and, and seneca you know the kind of more famous uh, plays and so so that that was one thing and for this particular work i really became interested in the idea of honing in on the most difficult moments of the play so those moments where medea makes her final determinations or plans to murder the murders themselves and the immediate aftermath. So really that sort of uh, that constellation of events. And so I wondered on a dramatic level what it would be like to take what were in reality very brief parts of the play and to aggressively zoom in on them so that now those or these moments would become the totality of the drama. And I was interested in seeing if I could maintain the almost um, unbearable level of urgency that those moments in the play have, but to present them in this different context of maximum tension and to somehow do it without the accompanying need for background and expected dramatic framing. And I would just say that that said, there's an expectation or hope certainly on the part of the listener that they'll know the broad outlines of the myth. Talking a little bit about kind of the, you know, you're honing in on, you know, these very particular and very, very poignant topics and subject matter like you said you focused a lot on kind of that aspect of violence and pain being inflicted on people in in various ways kind of throughout your career and with this in particular did you have in mind some of the visual aspects to it as well I mean what what drew you to you know, setting it in the way that it it was. 
Yeah, sure. It's it's a it's a good question. I I think that most of the the reason I've been writing more for the theater in this in this time, as I said, really the last fifteen years, is because I became increasingly interested in using my my eyes, you know, and 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 looking, in, in addition to listening. And in the case of Medea, it was a shift away from previous pieces, and that. I attempted to write it so it could be presented fully staged or fully concert version, and so that was tricky. I'm, or you know, it was a it was a challenge that you know added to the difficulties that I I felt that this piece presented. And so that since Medea, that idea has also become increasingly interesting to me to both. Uh, see and not see uh, what's happening or to use, you know, the, the mind's eye rather than, you know, being directed by a director or the performers themselves or the performers in, in certain capacities of performance. And so the whole endeavor of presenting, you know, musical objects that are that are intended to be experienced by both ear and eye is, is increasingly interesting to me and i don't know if i succeeded in the case of, of this piece um it was only it, it was presented in an unstaged version so i haven't had the experience yet of seeing it through the eyes of others
When you kind of start off writing this and then working with the librettist who you've worked with before, Stephanie Fleischman, is there what's the collaboration between the two of you, especially kind of in the, I mean, there's the text, of course, but then also understanding the staging that may or may not, as, as you just said, be present. How do you work together to try and achieve that vision of having kind of that dual aspect to the piece. Stephanie was the first librettist I ever worked with. So we worked this, Mattia was the second project that we worked on. The first was uh, Popea, which was just a few years prior. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it requires a huge amount of compromise and working together, but hopefully when there is something along the lines of a shared sensibility, each find something of themselves bettered or augmented by the other. Um, and I found that even with a shared sensibility, though, it remains a long process of building trust and sharing visions. Um, I do think each collaboration with Stephanie is built on the other. And so the nature of the relationship grows and changes, you know, not only with each new project, but with every conversation. And it's been really rewarding to, to work with someone who, again, not only shares that I perceive to be a shared sensibility, but but pushes the sensibility and both, you know, open and can be pressing, you know, to 
challenge, um, to sort of accepting and challenging and somehow the right measure. And so when it comes to the content in both of these projects, there were things that I wanted to do. In the case of Gopea, which was a piece that I wanted to do for quite some time. And so uh, I had much more fixed ideas about that. But with Medea, I went to Stephanie right away, always considering that uh, I might do the libretto myself. But it became apparent that this particular piece, I was going to need her. And I think she just did an absolutely remarkable job. I think it's a really very powerful libretto that she did. You know, whatever people think of the music, the, the libretto is, is quite an achievement. From what I've heard of Medea, I would, I would say the music is very, very powerful as well. Um, it's a very, you have a very, I think, distinct sound and approach, especially in these more, in these kind of, operatic works uh Popea and Medea I I think visceral is maybe the first word that comes to mind for me it can be an overwhelming sound which I think fits the subject matter how do you discover some of those sounds I mean some of the some of the sounds that you use are very very harsh and I would say almost approaching kind of an electronic type sound in the way that you use some of the strings and the winds and their kind of aggressive straight tones but how do you what what maybe draws you to that and then how do you layer that in and create kind of that musical tapestry i think i'm especially after composing a long time i think to try to disentangle the choices from as you said, the, the matter at hand, it becomes almost impossible. There's a kind of reflexive and involuntary reaction that the ear has to the urge to say something. Always, I think, it's an, an omnipresent search for rightness regarding sound and pacing and all the elements that go into making a piece of music. But I think intuition at some point you know, really just it becomes a, sort of a... a I would start, you know, run into the realm of speculation if I tried to, again, use the word for a second time, disentangle how, you know, and why the sounds are what they are. They they seem to be right. And, you know, and then I live with them for a long time after making the choices. But there are times when I can change my sort of my first intuitive passes at things. But, you know, hopefully there's a range of sound that appropriate to what is I'm saying, you know, only ultimately I can determine what's, what's appropriate that I'm, you know, I'm after something and do my best to, to achieve it. And I think because I so rarely do, um, it's what keeps writing music so exciting. Try to, to get it right. Even when, you know, even though what I'm writing is a fulfillment of what it was that I was hearing in my mind's ear, you know, in terms of living with something and, and, and whether it, it holds over time that I find incredibly elusive and you know, very few pieces that I've written that I'm still happy with, you know, to move away from, from them chronologically. But again, that's what, what I think is part of what keeps things so exciting for me.
you said something very interesting there. You're not necessarily happy with uh, pieces as you move further away from them in, in time. Do you, you know, I mean, some composers like to just leave it behind forever and kind of say it's it's there, it's in that it's in that place and it'll stay there. Do you do you often go back to those old pieces and and try and edit them, or do you do you have kind of a a rule in place for yourself perhaps that that says no I'm just going to leave that there whether I'm you know ha- happy with it 10 15 20 years later or not yeah I think well one one way to sort of deal with that is, is that I will often take years to write something so maybe the actual getting it on to paper you know will take a period of days weeks months or, or or years but in in terms of assessing it and sort of ascertaining how i feel about it that process usually will i will give it a few years and then once that period and so i might make changes during that time but once you know there's there's a door closes at some point you know usually within i would say two years after the completion of something and then after that i i generally don't go back but oftentimes there's a a re-engagement with material um you know i think you know a composer's language their ideas their you know any given element of a piece of music you know one is constantly in dialogue with oneself so so many times material from a piece from x amount of years ago will find its way into another piece and 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 this kind of ongoing say dialogue is for me is important and in a way it's a way of 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 sort of advancing and reconfronting rethinking reconsidering the material and pieces that i might not be so happy with after a time so it it, it allows for kind of a material sense of a renewal you you live with a piece for so long and yes as you as you said at, at some point a door does have to close and we change you know i think when one is younger that's difficult to come to terms with and for me part of that is recognizing particular weaknesses and then allowing the fact that allowing for the fact that that experience can profoundly change a person and and allowing that to happen and I, i know for myself i tried not to allow that to happen i tried to like you know hew to some idea of myself and that the music started to improve once I allowed myself to experience, uh, to take note of the world around me more. Talking about that continued dialogue, is, is that part of what draws you to these Greek tragic stories? Is that, I mean, there, there's stories that have existed for thousands of years. There's kind of always a dialogue about them and they're still taught, still read, still put, you know, still put on a stage today. Would that be, is that how you see some of that in that conversation over a long period of time? My engagement with them, you know, definitely it has to do, you know, these are very human stories and that there's nothing particularly old about what's happening here, unfortunately, in many cases. But it would be impossible for me to also separate the performance 
performers that I wrote them for and the pieces because each of these works were conceived of them for people, for specific living people and their sensibilities. So that's kind of there in equal measure. So there's this dialogue with particular stories that we can find, you know, in myriad places, but then the dialogue with the particular performers that are being asked to inhabit these roles. That's where ultimately I find them, the interest in these particular stories. The performers are a key element in all this and their relationships to history too, and their thoughts and ideas about the experiences that are you know, rendered on paper, but then having to then live those stories. Uh, and then in some cases relive you know, what they may see as parallel experiences or parallel familiarities the stories themselves, it's like a hub and spoke system, you know, they're just sort of there at the center. And then there's just sort of innumerable spokes that get out from that center point and leads to very unexpected, oftentimes, results. You talked a little bit about being drawn to the visual element, and that's why you've been doing these types of projects over the last few years. What um, kind of I've seen throughout your compositional history a lot of writing for the voice and kind of voice in a chamber form and then a monodrama and then kind of a more full operatic setting. What draws you to the voice in particular over, say, you know, a violin, a clarinet, a, a cello? Well, I'm not, I'm definitely not drawn to it more than, than sure. any of these yeah. other particular instruments or sounds. But I think the honest answer um, is that after working with Ah Young Hong a, a decade ago now on, on the threshold of winter, um, which was, uh, you know, just a two-hour monodrama. Um, the inspiration from her performance of that and everything after not only performances of my work, but, but any work that she does, um, it was such that essentially everything I've written since that first collaboration has been for voice, with very few exceptions that she's just somehow able to bring to life to inhabit what I'm attempting to say uh, and sound with an understanding all aspects of performance, namely sound and sight, as we're talking about, um, that my imagination just returns to her and her voice, her presence, her disposition uh, again and again. And so this past decade, that turn to the voice in almost everything really was ignited by that first collaboration with her. And at this point, I've probably written 10 pieces for her, um, you know, including multiple operas and, and other things. I, I, it's, but it's really rooted in, in this kind of excitement.
you spoke a little, you know, we've talked a lot about how, you know, the, the process and how long it might take to write something and how it comes about. You took 15 years to write uh, Sew Me Into a Shroud of Leaves, and it's a very, very long piece as well, about 660 minutes, I believe, in three parts. What gave birth to the idea of writing something at that scale? I mean, taking 15 years to write something that long, to a certain extent, makes, to me, quite a bit of sense, because it's just a lot of music. But what drew you to write in in that kind of a, a form? Well, in... 2001, I felt somewhat rift um, regarding my work. And that fall, um, I was in Berlin and I met the poet Christopher Middleton in 2015. And that relationship, both with his poetry uh, and the friendship which ensued, was really the uh, point for this cycle and really all of my work from that time forward has been influenced, I think, in some way from experience of knowing him and his poetry, distant respects. I had written um, a number of extended works when I was a student, um, you know, so pieces that were, I mean, no more than an hour or so, but I was not in, encouraged to do so. And time went on, especially through my 20s, strongly. As a, encouraged. Um, and so at this moment in 2001, I remember thinking that I, I shouldn't have turned away from this sensibility that I had for writing larger pieces. Um, and Middleton's poetry became a kind of renewed starting point. I began the piece then. I had a sense that it was going to be, you know, that ultimately it would be something that would that each of the parts of the cycle, although what those parts were, changed a little bit off and on over over the first i don't know clutch of years or so but but i had a sense that each one would be around you know three hours but but it, that changed ultimately because ultimately the first the first one is the, the first part is about three hours the second part is about two hours and then the last part is over approaches seven hours all i had was the sense of the the, the scale the general scale was was there um but the content and the sort of the poetical references of each one, that changed too and grew. And, you know, so the piece, you know, it evolved, you know, over some time before it reached its, its final form. But, but it was clear, though, at, at that time in the fall of 2001, what I was going to attempt to try to do. You know, and of course, I didn't have, I, I, had, I had the same amount of, pushback in terms of what a piece like that would mean or, or what, you know, there certainly have been other very large pieces written over time, but there hasn't really been a, a place for them. That was okay. You know, at that time I, I, I felt like I had, I, had, I had bigger concerns, something I needed to try to do. Thank you. 
You have split a lot of your time between working in the U.S., primarily out of uh, out on the East Coast in New York, and as well as working in Europe. You've been composer in residence with Camerata Bern. You've had this very clear attachment to you know Vienna, Austria, and as well as Switzerland. You know, with some of these recent you know, premieres in these large-scale kind of uh, recent operatic productions have been premiered in Europe. What has drawn you to working in those areas? Is it just kind of a practical, that's where opportunity for your music lies? Is it just there's more programming there? Or is it uh, something else? Has it just been uh, the artistic collaborations that you found there have been especially fruitful i think it's a you know it's something of of both um you know there's just the the artists that i've been um working the most with or the people that have taken an interest in, in some of these these projects um they they're there, as you say. I mean, you know, the So Me Into a Shroud of Lease didn't receive its world premiere until late 2019, you know, having been begun in 2001. And that was uh, the Vien Modern Festival. And that then led to discussions about other things that I was thinking about. And at that time, Popea was, the, was what I was thinking about. And Still to this day, I'm just completely amazed that, that it ended up happening with Cyclone and Basel and, and, and Vien Modern, that they they were able to to put this on. And also just a complete openness to to what composers are feeling and thinking. Um, you know, Ah Young didn't have any any connection with those festivals at the time, but 
you know, they met her and, and listened. And, you know, and so when I suggested and asked, I said, you know, I don't think I suggested, I just said, it's like, you know, this title roles for this singer, you know, and they, they agreed. And then, so, so then from there, she establishes her relationships. These institutions um, that I've been fortunate enough to work with, they just, there's just staggering openness to, to listen to the composer and to, you know, consider what the composer hopes for, you know, no, not, not, you know, dreams about, and, and there's a, an openness to consideration, which I've found unique in, in my experience. And so that extends to the performers that I, uh, to work with um, here or bring over to there or vice versa, you know, um, you know, a lot of these pieces, almost all these pieces, they haven't, they require an enormous amount of preparation. And so again, this is where the, the issues of trust come in. Um, I've been really moved by commitment of these groups and, and the trust that they have. And yeah, and so in these past 10 years, most of um, most of what I've done just happens to be over there, but uh, you know, one never knows. A composer never knows where they're going to find connections. Um, can be anywhere. I mean, human connections. I mean, connections where people find meaning or they're open to the search for meaning uh, and challenge. I've just been amazed uh, to you know, especially over the past few decades, to see how much sort of cross-cultural communications um, there have been compared to when I was was a student. It's really exciting to see. And with the younger generations of composers, it's exponentially more than than my generation and and, and older generations. It's just become a tremendous amount of challenges that, that the art world faces right now. Um, and has for quite some time, but I'm when it comes to just the human connectivity and the potential for meaningful artistic collaborations and relationships, I'm quite optimistic. I think that's a very beautiful sentiment, and I'd I'd have to agree with you. And I think that's uh, as good a place as any for us to finish our conversation. And I think it's a nice note to end on. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate you uh, coming on to talk about your music and just a lot of, you know, broadly personal things. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org. We also have a Patreon that you can contribute to at two different levels, five or ten dollars if you enjoy what you're listening to find out more at patreon.com slash relevant tones